0: Welcome to American Ambassadors Events, the podcast that allows listeners to sit in on otherwise exclusive events hosted by the Council of American Ambassadors. This episode features a presentation on Taiwan and the People's Republic of China by Dr. Richard Bush at the Council's Contentious Neighbors Spring Conference on May 7th, 2019. This session was moderated by CAA member Robert
1: Orr. First of all, it gives me really a lot of Pleasure to be able to introduce our next guest. Um, for me, being an old Asia hand, emphasis old. Um, and Richard Bush and I have been friends since the, uh, since way back to. I just was leaving the, the uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee, and Richard, you, I think you were coming on, so uh, we we crossed past that far back. Um, I want to read you a little bit about his illustrious background. Um, and just suffice to say, as a, for myself, I'm a Japan hand. Uh, but uh, I can say uh, without question that all Asia hands across the board have really tremendous respect for our, our very uh, talented speaker. So uh, it's, it's a great honor to be able to introduce him today. Uh, Richard is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and he holds the Armacost chair there, uh, and he holds uh, another chair at the Center for Asia and East Asia Policy Studies. Um, He came to Brookings in in July of 2002 uh, after having spent time at the Asia Society. It was one of his first endeavors back in 1977, and he went to the uh, House Subcommittee on Asian Pacific Affairs. Um, Richard has been uh, really a prolific writer on Asian affairs, and is a real profound authority on China and Taiwan. Thus, we're having him speak today about that really intricate relationship that um, blows hot and cold a lot. And so, um, you know, it's it's really uh, a great honor to have him here. Um, Richard has a PhD from Columbia University and without any further ado, let me uh, take this opportunity to introduce him, Dr. Bush.
2: Thank you, you, Skip, for those uh, excessive remarks. It's a great pleasure to be with you today. It's an even greater pleasure to see John Maystow, with whom I was a co-conspirator on a couple of occasions. Um, And um, it's nice uh, to uh, walk in this uh, beautiful morning from Brookings. Uh, I'm going to talk about the China-Taiwan dispute uh, and where it is today and how afraid we should be about uh, the interaction there. Uh, Let me give you the basics first. Let me start my – the two parties to the Taiwan dispute, the People's Republic of China on the one hand and Taiwan on the other, have um, deeply conflicting goals. Uh, China wants unification of Taiwan on its terms. Um, It sees it as uh, um, um, sort of like uh, part of the southern United States at the end of the Civil War. They want it back. Uh, Taiwan wants to avoid PRC-style unification and keep the status quo. Each of these two parties wants the United States to help it achieve its goal. Um, U.S. policy has focused on the process by which the dispute is resolved, that it be peaceful and acceptable to the people of Taiwan. Um, We have deliberately chosen not to get into any kind of intermediation between the two sides. Uh, George Marshall tried that in the late 1940s, and uh, it failed. And that created an allergy in the US government to ever trying it again. Um, The probability that um, Beijing would go to war in the foreseeable future is low. Um, The risks are high. Um, And Taiwan has become more cautious and less provocative. Um, But Beijing has a plan B, and that is intimidation, coercion without violence. Uh, One final basic point. Um, Some parts of the Trump administration uh, would like uh, to use Taiwan again as a link in a chain of containment of China. So I think um, given all of your backgrounds, you know the basics of the story, so I will Rush through it. Um, there was a civil war in China between the Nationalist Party or the Kuomintang, led by Chiang Kai-shek, um, uh, and that ruled the Republic of China on the one hand, and then Mao Zedong and the communists on the other. The communists won. Chiang and his uh, KMT regime retreated to Taiwan. For two decades, 50s, uh, 60s into the 70s, The United States uh, provided strong support for Taiwan, economic security and otherwise. Um, And we uh, recognized the Republic of China as the government of China, even though it controlled only uh, 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 the island of Taiwan. Uh, The KMT regime imposed a harsh authoritarian uh, system on the ethnic Chinese people who were already living on Taiwan Uh, that began to slowly moderate in the 1970s, but it was still a pretty tough place. Um, Presidents Nixon and Carter uh, moved U.S. policy um, away from Taiwan and towards Beijing. Um, We switched diplomatic relations uh, from the ROC to the PRC. We treated uh, and have treated Taiwan relations on an unofficial basis. Um, I was the... um, Chairman and managing director of the American Institute in Taiwan, which is the mechanism by which the U.S. government conducts those unofficial relations. Um, But they are quite substantive. Um, In 1979, 1980, we terminated uh, the defense treaty with uh, the Republic of China. Um, The Taiwan Relations Act, um, which was enacted. almost 40 years ago, uh, almost precisely. Uh, And the Reagan administration that followed Carter began the process of restoring backing for Taiwan within the parameters of of the one China policy as we defined it. Um, Beijing, about 40 years ago, enunciated its formula for unification, something called one country, two systems. And the idea was uh, that the Republic of China government would go out of existence Uh, that Taiwan would be a special administrative region of the People's Republic of China. It would have a lot of autonomy, um, but um, Beijing would have ultimate control, particularly over who led Taiwan. If this sounds familiar, this is the same formula that was used for Hong Kong, and we've seen how that's worked out. Um, From 19... 86 uh, to 1996 uh, occurred what I think is the key development in uh, this sort of complicated story, and that was Taiwan's transition to democracy, um, which had several consequences. First of all, it set loose uh, a variety of sentiments that had existed below the surface during the authoritarian period. A fairly small minority wanted an independent Taiwan, a republic of Taiwan. Um, a growing majority of the population didn't want Taiwan independence, but they did identify, and identify with Taiwan. At this point, the best polls um, suggest that less than 10% of, the, of those surveyed um, believe that they are Chinese only. Um, the rest... Um, either say, uh, I'm Taiwanese only, or I'm some mixture of Taiwanese and Chinese. These terms are not defined, of course, and so one shouldn't read too much into them, but uh, the the main point is clear, that the people of the island identify with that, with Taiwan. Um, um, uh, The other development that democracy brought was a... um, a pretty feisty opposition party, uh, the Democratic Progressive Party. It advocated Taiwan independence at the very first, and then moderated its views in order to win elections. Finally, uh, in terms of any negotiations that might occur between Taiwan and um, Beijing, democracy gave the Taiwan people a seat at the negotiating table. any leader of Taiwan who wanted to do a deal with Beijing um, would could only do one that, that could command public support. Now, from 1995 to 2008, um, some Taiwan leaders manipulated Taiwan nationalism for domestic political gain. Uh, first was Li Denghui with of the Kuomintang, and then Chen Shui-bian with the opposition Democratic Progressive Party. Um, and then subsequently, um, leaders have um, uh, not manipulated nationalism so much. Uh, they've moderated their views. And the main reason for that is that uh, the Taiwan public um, prefers, prefers the status quo. Uh, it doesn't want their leaders doing anything that would upset that. Now, if you poll people and ask, you know, if we could have a Republic of Taiwan without war, would you um, be in favor of it? And a large majority say yes. If you then say, if you believe that there would be war, um, what do you think? And the number drops uh, uh, sharply. Um, Taiwan people are very pragmatic. Uh, They know that a declaration of independence would probably lead to war, and they don't want that. They want to make money. Only 2% of the public, according to the polls, want unification immediately. Um, 4% want Taiwan independence immediately. 88% want some version of the status quo. Um, I said that the two most recent leaders have been more moderate. The first of these uh, is a gentleman named uh, Ma Ying-jeou. His family came from mainland China in 1949, although he was born in Hong Kong. Um, He grew up within the KMT system. Uh, He uh, has a law degree from Harvard University. Um, He is a lawyer's lawyer. Um, He is very committed to the Republic of China. Um, But he also um, believed that the best way to preserve Taiwan's freedom, security, prosperity, and dignity was to engage China as uh, much as it could. Um, He once told me that his grand strategy was to um, bind China and Taiwan together as much as possible, uh, and so reduce any incentives that, that the People's Republic of China might have to go to war. Um, President Ma accepted uh, the PRC's basic principles for cross-strait relations, something called the 1992 consensus, and then he re- redefined them to make, become more Taiwan friendly. Um, the crucial question during his presidency, which ran from 2008 to 2016, was: um, Would there be political talks with Beijing concerning Taiwan's legal status and its relationship to the PRC? Um, President Ma was initially not opposed to that, but then he he backed off. He understood, first of all, that the public was not ready for its government to engage in those kinds of talks. He also understood uh, that um, the conceptual groundwork had not been laid. Um, So there were talks among scholars, but that was about it. Um, Then President Ma uh, ran into some domestic political problems uh, and um, the uh, development of cross-strait relations stalled. Um, His party, the KMT, became unpopular and uh, it was defeated in a stunning way in uh, 2016. And the Democratic Progressive Party for the second time, controlled the presidency, for the first time, controlled the legislature. And the president was a woman named Tsai Ing-wen. And she also is a lawyer. She's a trade lawyer, not an international lawyer. Um, She has a trade negotiator's uh, approach to policy issues, trying to balance uh, different priorities uh, uh, without... um, tilting too far in one direction or too far away from another direction. Um, She's soft-spoken, but she's really smart, as President Ma was. Um, Her goal was to continue the economic engagement um, with um, um, China. Uh, She wanted to reassure China as much as possible that uh, she was not a threat, that she really did want to preserve the status quo as she said repeatedly uh, during the campaign. Um, President Tsai understood the need uh, to stay on good terms with the United States um, as some previous presidents had not. Um, She did not accept in an explicit way uh, Beijing's um, preconditions uh, for cross-strait relations. Um, She tried to Um, address them in a more ambiguous way which I think she hoped would create a trust-building process um, and a stability in cross-strait relations. Um, I think that if Beijing had wanted to coexist with her um, and coexist with her party it could have done so. It could have found a way to do that. Uh, Instead Everything that has happened since she was inaugurated in May of 2016 um, has been designed uh, by Beijing to discredit the Democratic Progressive Party, discredit, discredit President Tsai. Um, and it has done this through a variety of um, basically sanctions. The number of tourists from the Chinese mainland who were visiting Taiwan dropped off. Uh, the um, channel, institutionalized channels that existed um, between the two governments uh, were suspended. Uh, Taiwan, uh, Beijing stole away a number of, of um, Taiwan's diplomatic allies. Um, and it didn't have very many, and it has uh, um, about a quarter less than it did. Um, it has sought to pressure uh, various governments to um, restrain themselves in relations with Taiwan, uh, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, its goal was uh, that she be defeated in uh, the next election, which is coming up uh, in about eight months, and um, have a president of the Kuomintang uh, again. The political situation in Taiwan right now is very confused. Um, President Tsai uh, has been challenged by a member of her party who is more radical than she, uh, who is fronting for forces who believe that she was too passive vis-à-vis Beijing uh, and that she should have been more aggressive. Um, Within the um, KMT, there are a variety of people uh, running for office. Um, All of them uh, say that they would uh, conduct relations with Beijing uh, better than Tsai Ing-wen has. That may be true, that that there may be problems even for them. Um, I don't think that Beijing will be as indulgent of a new KMT president as it was of President Ma. Now, let me um, talk a little bit about US policy. Up through the Obama administration, it was a fairly balanced policy, um, um, sort of supporting Taiwan in ways that we uh, could, um, uh, including uh, arms sales, uh, trying to improve the economic relationship, um, and uh, maintaining good communications with Taiwan's leaders. Um, All of this was done within the One China policy, which dictated, dictated unofficial relations. But we reserve for ourselves the, um, uh, the power to define what unofficial meant. So uh, it has become a more elastic cl- uh, concept as time has gone on. Um, the Trump administration and President Trump have taken a um, different approach. And the Trump administration is quite divided. On the one hand, you have the Department of Defense. Uh, which in the national security strategy and the national defense strategy has uh, defined China as a revisionist power, one that wants to displace um, the United States from the East Asian region. Uh, The policy implication of that um, is that we should be prepared to compete um, with China across the board on a whole of government basis, but particularly in the security area Um, starting from that premise. um, A place like Taiwan is um, useful, um, and um, the Department of Defense is working to uh, strengthen Taiwan in a variety of ways, um, often quietly. um, But the number of... uh, Uh, Navy destroyers that have gone through the Taiwan Strait in the last year or so is uh, higher than it was in the Obama administration. Um, And we um, advertise that fact. Um, On the other hand, the economic agencies of uh, the government uh, um, are unresponsive to Taiwan's desire to uh, negotiate, uh, for example, um, a bilateral investment agreement, which I think would really help the economy um, Taiwan would actually like a um, free trade agreement with the United States. Um, USTR is reluctant at this point. That may be changing. The, the Congress is very supportive of Taiwan and because it's very anti-China. So far, the things that China, that the Congress has done um, are written in ways that express sentiments, that offer suggestions, but don't require the president to do anything. Finally, there's President Trump himself. You may recall that uh, not long after he was elected, uh, he took a phone call from President Tsai ing That was a little unprecedented. Uh, about 10 days later, he suggested that uh, he might use Taiwan as a bargaining chip uh, with China over trade and um, North Korea. Um, then when he met with um, President Xi Jinping at Mar-a-Lago in April of 2017, apparently Um, President Xi Jinping made the case to Trump that um, Taiwan is really important to China. Taiwan is really important to me. The president of Taiwan is a troublemaker, so I need you to restrain U.S. policy um, towards China. Um, And President Trump um, bought that argument. Uh, And so... It appears that if uh, really significant proposals were put to him uh, for improving our relationship with Taiwan or strengthening Taiwan, uh, he might um, reject them. Uh, This makes it very complicated for Taiwan. It makes it very complicated for people in the bureaucracy um, who would like to um, um, push forward, but... uh, That's life in Washington right now. So thank you very much for your attention. I look forward to your questions.
1: I understand why Taiwan cares about this issue, and I I think I understand why the United States cared about this issue. If you could go do a little more depth on why China cares so much about this issue in this sense. Symbolically, I get it. But economically, politically, militarily how did they, what is the threat of Taiwan to China today? The end of World War II, got it, Chiang Kai-shek army, all that stuff. But today, why do they, why do, why does the government and to some extent the population care that much about Taiwan?
2: First of all, uh, it's important because they have defined it that way. and. As you understand, once a government has defined a problem to be an issue to be a problem, it remains a problem. Um, The line that you hear, and it was enunciated once again by Xi Jinping um, last, in January, in a major speech he gave on Taiwan policy. um, China cannot be a great country if it is not united. And because we defined Taiwan to be a part of China and because we want it back, um, the whole ambitious agenda of rejuvenating the Chinese nation, (coughs) which is how he defines it, um, depends uh, on bringing Taiwan back into the embrace of the motherland. Um, There is another more strategic (coughs) Um, consideration involved here. Uh, And that is that um, Taiwan is useful in terms of the projection of of Chinese power out into the Pacific. It makes China vulnerable if it is in the hands of others. And this goes back, interestingly, to the 17th century when the uh, imperial China took over Taiwan for the first time. There was a debate and um, the side that and some people wanted to just give Taiwan up. it was a, it was an island of savages and uh, what good is it to us? And a, um, an admiral of the Imperial Navy said, um, "If Taiwan is, the, is in the hands of the foreigners, it's a threat to our empire. It is better for us to have it. And deny it to others, than to let others have it. This was the same logic that led the United States uh, to um, sort of take over Hawaii. We were afraid that Europeans would uh, get a dominant dominant position in the in Hawaii, and then threaten the Western the United States. Whether that's true or not, that apparently is what they believe. Um, so um, it's. The two answers to your question, national prestige as we define it, and number two, um, avoiding strategic vulnerability.
0: Uh, The People's Republic of China is very active in Africa and in South America. Recently in South America, in the last year, a number of countries have closed their Taiwan embassies and opened PRC embassies. A country that I follow very closely has maintained and brags about it, maintain their Taiwan embassy. What are the Chinese pressures on those that do the wrong thing? And is the United States involved in smiling and talking to countries and encouraging them to maintain the Taiwan embassy there? Uh,
2: um, This is uh, a real problem area for the United States. um, El Salvador, um, late last year, switched. Um, the <clears throat> traditional approach of the United States to this problem, um, which uh, was continued, um, I think, to the, um, into the last administration, was that we are not going to take a position on which China Uh, a third country should have relations with. It's not our business. Um, This administration uh, has uh, taken a tougher position. Uh, It was surprised uh, when El Salvador flipped. It was, um, it saw these actions as part of a larger Chinese campaign to penetrate into our um, backyard. Um, But we are at a competitive disadvantage, because what China uh, has uh, uh, to um, turn these countries is money. Um, Money for development, money for infrastructure, um, money to fill the pockets of the leaders of those countries. Um, And we either cannot or will not compete in that way. Um, uh, So, If if President Tsai is re-elected in 2020, um, I think that uh, the rest of the countries in um, Latin America that have embassies in Taipei will switch. Um, And this will have a psychological impact in Taiwan. I think the entity that would have the largest psychological impact if it flipped is the Vatican. Uh, The Holy See. uh, it has representation in Taiwan, but not in Beijing. Um, you probably will have read of an agreement that, or a provisional agreement that was reached between the Vatican and Beijing um, on the appointment of bishops in China. Um, connected to that, uh, the, the question of diplomatic relations is connected to that, but it's, it wasn't part of the agreement. Um, but that's, um, I, I think, the ultimate prize. John Maystow?
0: Thank you, Richard, for a great presentation. Very clear. Um, a question about the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. It seems that the interests of the PRC and Taiwan converge with regard to greater Chinese uh, desires and ambitions and historical uh, uh, notions about the South China Sea. And and could you sort that out in terms of how it affects... The P.R.C. How it affects Taiwan, and how how it's how it's affecting the the countries of uh, of um, of, uh, of the area, uh, and uh, in particular, could you say something about uh, P.R.C. and the Philippines, which is a, a great interest to both of us from the old days until now? Yes.
2: Um, thank you very much. Um, you hint at uh, an interesting aspect of this, uh, and that is that. The original uh, Chinese claim to the South China Sea or the islands uh, or landforms in the South China Sea was made by the Republic of China in 1947 or even before that. And the original maps uh, declaring that to be Chinese territory are um, maps that can be found in Taipei and not in Beijing. Um, It's unclear why Uh, Somebody in the ROC Foreign Ministry thought that this was a good idea. It may have been that uh, those were um, had been used by the Japanese to China's disadvantage during the Second World War. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek was very conscious of the need to have exterior fortresses, uh, places that the ROC or China should... uh, should occupy and control uh, to make it harder for foreigners. Uh, That was how he viewed uh, Taiwan. Um, And so um, in terms of the territorial claim, uh, the PRC and the ROC claim is is virtually identical. And Taiwan actually controls one of the larger landforms there. uh, called Taiping Island, or uh, Ituaba. And uh, of all the landforms in the South China Sea, it is the one under international law that has the best claim to be an island uh, with an uh, exclusive economic zone. Uh, The difference between the two, a couple of differences. Number one is that um, uh, Beijing now has the power uh, to establish a much stronger presence Uh, through building artificial islands and through projecting military power uh, than Taiwan does. Um, Second, um, under President Ma Ying-jeou, he uh, enunciated a new policy towards the South China Sea uh, that reiterated the ROC's claims um, to the landforms, but uh, insisted that uh, this all be handled according to international law. Uh, and also insisted that any dis- disputes be solved uh, peacefully. So in terms of, of the territorial claim, uh, Taipei is aligned with Beijing. In terms of how to deal with this problem, Taipei is more aligned with us, or uh, at least the Obama administration. Um, on um, uh, China-Philippine relations, um, the um, previous president of the Philippines, um, President Aquino, uh, took quite a, um, a strong position against China, um, partly because of the South China Sea, um, and uh, sort of reflected uh, the concern about China's growing power. Uh, and. Um, sort of led to greater dependence on the United States or working with the United States. President Duterte, um, who um, I would not consider a member of the Filipino elite, the way President Aquino was, uh, who uh, is quite the populist, um, he um, took a very different approach to China. Um, It happened that he came into office just as an international tribunal was um, uh, uh, rendering a judgment on a case that, that the previous Filipino administration of President Aquino uh, had, had brought uh, concerning South China Sea issues. Um, the uh, tribunal um, uh, ruled uh, in the Philippines' um, favor, but President Duterte basically put that on the shelf. For him, uh, what was more important was uh, China and economic relations with China and getting Chinese investment. Um, um, It appears that um, uh, the government is uh, sort of not wholly behind this. I think uh, people in the foreign and national security establishment understand uh, the threat that China poses. uh, And they understand. Um, the importance of um, maintaining uh, the United States as its uh, security backer at the same time that it benefits uh, economically from China.
0: An excellent presentation. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Uh, In 1958, I was on an aircraft carrier as a naval officer protecting Kwomoi and Matsu Uh and uh, against bombardment every other day of mm-hmm. uh, Komoe and Matsu. Uh, and I've thought f- for the last 50 years, what happened to Komoe and Matsu? Uh, what kind of population, what kind of civilization is there? What what, uh, uh, and, and what's the dynamics today to those two islands?
2: Uh, it's an interesting story. Up until um, 1979, there was bombardment every other day. And then on January 1st, 1979, the uh, People's Republic of China announced that it was going to stop that. The islands remained uh, fortresses um, under Taiwan control for uh, a number of years after that. Um, but it was clear that the, um, there were economic benefits to be had um, for those islands and for Taiwan as a whole from China. And as part of um, Taiwan's growing economic engagement with China, first at the business level and then at the governmental level, um, uh, uh, life on those islands changed. (coughs) In um, uh, the year 2000, um, uh, Taiwan uh, began direct shipping from Kwamei and Matsu uh, to China, uh, uh, allowed for trade Uh, and um, allowed for sort of other contacts. And so um, there's actually a lot of uh, um, people moving back and forth, um, and um, uh, it's basically a a peaceful situation. Um, The government of the um, uh, 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 Democratic Progressive Party um, never regarded those islands as, uh, as sort of intimately connected with Taiwan the way Chiang Kai-shek did. Um, and um, it um, um, thought at one time about maybe just giving them up. Um, uh, one of the th- uh, types of people who come to uh, Kwumoi and especially are tourists, and they like to go to the museum on the island uh, concerning the bombardment back in 1958, and it's a nice museum. Um, I went to it once, and then I had to endure a luncheon with army officers um, uh, who uh, insisted that I um, drink Man Gaoliang, which is kind of like Tai, and it was the worst experience of my life.
3: Again, thank you uh, for your... <clears throat> Wonderful presentation. Um, my question is maybe a little off topic since it involves some islands that uh, are not disputed between Taiwan and, um, and the People's Republic, but rather by the Japanese, Yes, uh, the Ryuku Islands. And um, I just wondered if you had an opinion regarding the international legal aspects of those islands. It seems to me that the Chinese may have a stronger case on those islands than what we're giving them. Since that, after World War II, we sort of, in the agreements that we reached, uh, we took those islands away from Japan, since they had grabbed them after, uh, I mean, in the, you know, the militaristic um, wars of of the late 19th century, and uh, we took all of those islands away, including probably Formosa, uh, at that time too. Um, and they went back to where they belonged or, or at, at that time, which would have been China, since they had belonged to China, um, you know, prior to those uh, Sino-Japanese wars, you know, before that time. And then in 1970, I think it was, we gave uh, Japan managerial control, but not legal control. And so now, at this time, we're trying to give them to Japan... Uh, and, and China is 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 claiming that we have imperialistic, uh, you know, views there by giving the Japanese control instead of uh, China, which were wh- those islands were taken from China, um, you know, in the 19th century, late 19th century, and then taken away from Japan mm-hmm. after World War II. I just wonder, from an international law perspective, they're probably right. Am I wrong?
2: Um, are you referring to the Ryukus or the Senkakus?
3: Well, I, you know, I'm not sure, because I, I didn't refresh my memory before I asked that question, but uh, I, I think it's the Rikuku Islands, but I, I'm, I could be wrong about the name of it, because okay. I know this, that the name is disputed anyway. Okay. Uh,
2: well, then we're probably talking about the, the Senkakus, because the Chinese for that is Jiaoyu. Um, The Ryukus were a separate little kingdom, but it, uh, like uh, a number of uh, kingdoms in East Asia, traditionally, they paid tribute to the court in Beijing. Um, Japan uh, took over the Ryukus uh, in late 19th century. At that time, it also took over uh, uh, sort of uh, the small islands, the Senkakus, uh, which are called Diaoyu in Chinese um it, they're very hard to find on a map actually. Um, and uh, there the situation sat um, in um we took we um, occupied um the ryukyus um did we have it wasn't it was it a trusteeship? Yeah. no. Uh, over, yeah. over the Ryukus uh, after the war, um, and um, the then um, the Nixon administration pushed forward with the reversion of Okinawa and the associated islands, the Ryukus, to Japan, um, and, and that was um, um, executed in 1971. Uh, And those are considered by the United States as um, sovereign territory of Japan. Senkaku Islands are different. Those are disputed. They became disputed um, around 1968 or 1979 when a UN survey team uh, came to the conclusion that there were um, or might be (coughs) abundant oil and natural gas reserves. And suddenly, um, both China and Japan, both China's and Japan wanted them. Um, and they've been arguing about them <laughs> over since, ever since. Um, and at the time of Okinawa reversion, we um, were going to include the Senkaku and Jiaoyu in the package of territory that would be returned to Japan as, as Japanese sovereign territory. President John Kai-shek complained to um, the White House. Um, And at the last minute, Henry Kissinger decided that um, we should not acknowledge Japanese sovereignty over those islands, Um, and uh, just leave it at that. Because they were under the administrative control of Japan, or because they became under the administrative control of Japan, they are covered by Article. five of the uh, mutual security treaty, right. with Japan? Uh, there are a couple of questions over here. I and think the, we've uh, only got time for maybe uh, three of you okay. ask your questions quickly and I'll try and answer them quickly.
0: Um, Thank you so much for, uh, your presentation. My question is regarding, um, this administration's Indo-Pacific strategy, which it unveiled a little more than a year ago. So, um, the strategy is made to offer an alternative to Chinese methods of development, economic development. So, um, my, I guess it's a two-sided question. What what role, if any, does Taiwan see for itself in the Indo-Pacific strategy, if any? And then, in your opinion, what role could Taiwan play for the U.S. in um, diffusion of this alternative narrative for economic development? Thank you.
2: Um, uh, Taiwan always wants to be part of a U.S. strategy, whatever it is. Uh, It wanted to be part of the rebalance under Obama. Um, uh, Taiwan um, can contribute to this, uh, number one, by making sure its democracy is a good democracy and therefore setting an an example for other countries. Number two, it is involved in development projects in in various places around the world, particularly in Southeast Asia, and so that's a help to the United States. Number three, it uh, contributes to that strategy and peace by not being provocative to China. Please
0: go ahead. The the people of the Philippines like the United States and like our people, we have an amazingly positive relationship there going back many, many years. Um, Duterte is an exception to this. Uh, And um, uh, the question I have is, in your impression, is he a long-term intelligence asset of China, or has he been a recently acquired asset?
2: Um, I'm not sure anybody controls uh, President Duterte, um, and it's um, he, uh, he may not be an agent of the Chinese in the in the technical sense of the term, but his actions are certainly benefiting um, China. Um, I think, and John can um, elaborate, that there are some. There's an animus that he has towards the United States because of things that happened to his family. Um, and he's always had it against, it, against, against us. Um, uh, moreover, I think that um, we should expect that every few presidencies in the Philippines, somebody will come along who's not part of the establishment, who is a populist, and who plays the nationalist card, which means the anti-American card.
0: If I might, thank you so much for your um, your very enriching talk. Uh- this is a, a bit maybe off topic in the sense that okay. um, I just wanted to ask a little bit more about the expansionism of China in the Silk Road project, if you'd be able to comment on that a bit. Um, as of recently, China has been investing immensely in Syria as well as in Ukraine in post conflict stabilization and reconstruction. Um, Russia has now signed a 49 year agreement to take hold of Latakia. Iran also has an agreement to open a new port uh, on the Mediterranean Sea, both these are. And China is looking to also expand to the Mediterranean. Um, If we look back to our world history books, this is kind of familiar. So I'm wondering if you could maybe touch on this topic.
2: Uh, First, I would recommend that you read anything written by my colleague David Dollar on this. Uh, Number two, um, we do need to recognize that there is a crying demand for infrastructure all around the world, including in our own country. we are not providing it. The World Bank has gotten away from doing infrastructure. Um, China saw an opening, and it is exploiting it. It um, had the foreign exchange earnings to be able to do it. It had excess capacity in its construction and in- industry. And so exporting the, those services um, made sense. Um, the. One question, um, of course, is, is there a geopolitical or strategic purpose behind this? Um, And I think on that we'll have to see, um, because it started out as a commercial venture that then became a sort of political symbol of what China is. Um, The second question is, what are the economic terms under which this is happening, and what happens when these projects do not turn out to be economically sustainable? That the port doesn't make money or the railway doesn't make money? Who? Um, what happens then? Um, and China's already faced this in a couple of these, and their tendency has been to forgive the debt or to reschedule the debt, um, and but. It, you know, it. Um, you know, I think countries have to be smart in um, sort of taking on the obligations that go with the benefits of this infrastructure. Um, you know, we have to play a, a stronger game in terms of of um, sort of providing infrastructure or helping these countries think through the policy. Um, infrastructure that should go with the projects. You know, what policies should they pursue in considering whether to um, sort of go along with the Chinese in this.
0: That was Dr. Richard Bush at the Council of American Ambassadors Contentious Neighbors Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to American Ambassadors events on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review.